Genesis chapter 3. We are going to finish Genesis chapter 3 tonight. And we, as of last week, have come to what you could call the inciting incident in Scripture. You guys remember those little charts you had in your literature class that was flat, and then it went up, and then it went down, and the bottom was the inciting incident. It was the first thing that happened. Well, this is where we are in the Bible, where Adam and Eve eat of the fruit of the tree that they were not supposed to, and then tonight we're going to see God lay a curse upon his creation in judgment of the sin of Adam and Eve. And we saw the serpent, who is the devil, deceiving Eve into eating it, and Adam ate it as well. Paul tells us he was not deceived, but he was absolutely complicit. And tonight the Lord is going to address what has happened. And this is the beginning of trouble in Scripture. Up till now, it's been very good. God saw that it was good. And now it's going to be not so good for a while. But we're also going to see the first glimmers of hope here in the book of Genesis. Because God is not going to put an end to humanity. And he would have been fully within his rights to do so, wouldn't he? God is God. The wages of sin is death. And if Adam and Eve had sinned, God would have been perfectly within his divine rights to mulligan, start all over, and let's, let's try that one more time. But he's not going to do that because he's merciful and he loves his creation that he's made in his own image. Nor is he going to allow the devil to ruin what he had done. God is, is not about to let that happen. You're not going to come in my house and do that. And the Lord is going to spend all of scripture and all of history rerouting what the enemy had done for the Lord's own glory. And tonight we see the beginning of that. And it's a tragic story, but you can see the, the beginnings of hope in this story. And Romans 8 is a great summary passage for what we're going to discuss tonight. As, as Paul puts it in chapter 8, verse 20 and 21 of Romans. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. That would be Adam, right? But it was subjected, it says, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And those are the two pieces we're going to look at tonight. That creation was subjected to futility. It went bad. It went very, very wrong in the beginning. But there was hope there that creation would be set free from its bondage to corruption. People ask all the time, well, if God is so good and God made the world, then why are things so bad? Well, we need to make sure we are 100% of the time willing to say, this is not the way God made it. God did not make it this way. This is a world that is cursed and ravaged by sin. It is a world under judgment. The Bible says this is a cursed world. So people's anger at the way things are, both naturally and personally, it's like you're, you're on the right track. Yes, we're with you. This is not the way God made it then they begin to ask, well, why would God allow it to be that way? And that's when we begin to discuss what we're going to say tonight. You, you can't point to an external force that made it this way. You've got to point the finger back at yourself. It's us that did this. But there is hope. The Lord is going to give us tonight the first promise of the Messiah. And while Adam and Eve had to look forward to the coming promise, we have the privilege to look backwards at the fulfillment of that promise and look forward to the consummation of, of all things. So there's a lot of important theology in this passage, but there's also a lot of important lessons that we can learn for our own life. And I hope that it's instructive for all of us. Why don't we begin 
in verse 8, and we'll read down to verse 13. We have just read that Adam and Eve ate the fruit, their eyes were opened, they knew they were naked, they made garments out of fig leaves for themselves. And then in verse 8, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And we'll stop there for right now. So Adam and Eve have eaten the fruit, covered themselves with garments of fig leaves, but then they hear the Lord himself walking in the garden. Man, if you were to read verse 8 out of the context... Wouldn't that be the most wonderful thing? If that was your life and you heard the sound of the Lord God walking in your garden in the cool of the day, that would be the best day of your life. You would never talk about anything else for the rest of your life. It says he was walking in the cool of the day. That word for cool, it's actually the word ruach in Hebrew. It means wind. It also can be translated spirit. Very interesting how it says that, that he was walking in the wind of the day when things were starting to cool down, when the evening breeze was coming in. And it's also very interesting, I won't bore you with the grammar, but when it says that he was walking, there's a unique form of that word that it uses, and it's used to express habit or iteration. What that means is, you could insert maybe in parentheses, that they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden as he usually did. This is what God frequently did. You could say that God had a standing appointment to come into the garden and walk with Adam and Eve. How cool is that? They used to walk with God in the garden. And many people have speculated, and I think it's, it's fair to assume, that this is what you would call a Christophany in Scripture. And Christa means Christos or Christ, and phani means like an appearance of something. So God is walking with them in the garden, that this is God when he's taken on a human form. So this would be the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ walking with them. And you cannot be 1,000% sure about that, but it is very interesting to to think that this person, God, walking in the garden, if he might not have looked a little bit like Jesus of Nazareth. Just interesting to think about. You know, we still say today that if somebody is righteous and godly, that that man walks with God. We'll ask each other, right? How's your walk with God going? And that's kind of Christianese, but we got to know where it comes from. It comes from Adam and Eve walking in the garden every day. And when we ask each other that question, it's totally appropriate. Are you walking with God? If your life was a path, are you walking with God? When God shows up in the garden to walk with you, are you there? Or are you doing like Adam and Eve did and are you hiding? Because Adam and Eve hid themselves from God. And this is obviously the first time this has ever happened. God calls out to Adam, where are you? Think God had ever had to say that before? Where are you? Adam, I'm here. Where are you? And Adam explains, well... I was ashamed, Lord. I, I'm not decent, you know. <laughs> I was naked and I was ashamed. I didn't want you to see me like this, Lord. I, I, I'm sorry about that. And then the Lord asked him that question, who told you you were naked? Because Adam had been naked before. It had never been a problem. 
Because Adam did not have that knowledge of good and evil. There was nothing within Adam that would assume anything wrong about that. When you have little babies, right? They run around the house naked. Nobody cares. There's nothing weird about that. There's nothing wrong about that. But now Adam is like, oh, I didn't want you to see me. And the Lord's like, something's different, Adam. What happened? Who told you that it was embarrassing to be naked? Who told you there was something shameful about being naked? Have you eaten of the tree that I told you not to eat? Adam is ashamed, right? I was ashamed. Sin brings shame, does it not? When you sin, you don't feel good about yourself. That's a thing that we see in movies, isn't it? That somebody does something wicked and awful and they strut away like, yeah, I don't even care. People don't feel like that. Even the most hardened criminals, when they come to Jesus later, they'll tell you, oh, it was all an act, man. I felt bad every minute of every day. Sin brings shame. And I wish I could find the quote, but I heard it a long time ago. There was some psychologist who had... uh, made this statement that the only problem psychology has to solve is the problem of guilt. And if we could solve that, we could solve everything else. And there's some insight there, but it's also poorly phrased because the problem is not guilt. The problem is that we are guilty, right? Well, if we could get people to stop feeling guilty, well, hold on, they are guilty. (laughs) We could get them to stop being ashamed. Well, they're doing shameful things. This is the problem. And Now you see all these campaigns that want to remove shame from various things. And there can be an appropriate place for that because there's some things that we don't need to be ashamed of. But there are some folks that think shame itself is the problem. we got to get rid of that. You shouldn't be ashamed of anything. We talk about people who are shameless. That's not a compliment. You're shameless, aren't you? You don't feel bad about anything. That's not good. You don't want to be around somebody who's shameless. And Adam was ashamed, and he should have been. And you know, when we sin, and sin brings shame into our lives, or guilt into our lives, we can't just hold on to that, because that's like a hot potato. You can't hold it. You've got to do something with it. And Adam and Eve use two strategies here that we all use. And the first thing that they do, and first thing that we do when we find ourselves in sin is we hide ourselves. We hide ourselves. The first thing Adam and Eve did, they saw each other, they saw they were naked, their imaginations had been unleashed by the knowledge of good and evil, and they covered themselves. They made garments of fig leaves. They hid themselves. Adam and Eve, the first man and the first woman, hiding themselves from each other. This is what we do. We create garments, quote unquote, for ourselves to conceal who we are before people. We don't want people to see us as we really are. That's, that's the symbolism of being naked, isn't it? When you say, I just felt naked. It's, I felt like I was exposed. I was laid open before people. And we don't want people to see us that way. So we cover ourselves. We hide. And we can put up a front to deceive people, to trick people into thinking that we're not quite who we really are. One of the fun parts of finding somebody that you love is you find somebody where you can start to let that down and they still love you. And that's what's wonderful about marriage and and good friendships and everything else, right? But the thing is, when we put that up, God knows who we really are. God is not deceived. God understands who we are. And you know, you, you can trick yourself for a while, but there's always somebody or something that comes up and reminds you. You ever, this is funny, people will go off to college, like, all right, I'm out of state. Nobody knows me. I'm going to cut my hair. I'm going to start going by my middle name. 
Nobody's going to know anything about me. And I've always wanted to be like a skateboarder. That's like my thing now. You know, we totally want to reinvent ourselves. But then somebody from home comes to visit. Totally blows the lid off the whole thing. You might think you're slick now, but all of a sudden somebody who knows who you are shows up. This is what we do. We put up a smoke screen. We put on garments of fig leaves. We get a fake personality going. I'm a very outgoing person. And I can tell you something about people who are outgoing. A lot of times they are the most insecure people you'll ever meet. A lot of times we think that it's the shy one. All the movies that have the, the shy kid being pushed around, they're the most insecure. No, a lot of times it's the one who's loud. The way that they deal with it is by being Pow, right here. It's really bright. It's really sunny. I'm smiling all the time. It's a fake personality to conceal who you really are. Or sometimes we just have a fake web personality, right? We're, we're too proud to do it in person, but you go online. You ever like go to your friend's Facebook or Instagram and you're like, who is this? You don't do any of those things. You don't even play guitar. What are you doing posting with a guitar, you know? We put up a fake personality. We can go really passive sometimes to stop this. Like, oh, just... I just let things happen to me. I'm very calm. I'm very quiet. Because you've got thoughts turning around inside of you. You don't want to let out. So you get quiet. If I just stay quiet, no one's going to push it. No one's going to ask questions. Or you go the other way. You're scared to death, so you get aggressive. Not necessarily physically violent, you know what I mean? But you're out there. You're talking to people. You're the one driving the conversation. You're the one saying what needs to be said. Because inside, you're scared to death. And you're afraid that if somebody pins me down... You ever know somebody, or maybe it's you, I know it was me for a while, when things start to get calm and serious, you just can't handle it. The conversation starts to get too deep. We start to have too long of pause in between the sentences. Somebody's got to make a stupid joke, and it's not even funny. We just got to keep the energy up, because if the energy gets down, I'm going to start to think, and that's not good. It's all putting on garments of fig leaves. We're trying to hide from each other, We're trying to hide from God. There are some people that even will get mean on purpose. They're not mean people, but they'll get mean because they want to keep you away. It's like a dog that is hurt is going to be more vicious than any other dog you've ever seen. Don't touch me. My leg is hurt. I'm going to snarl. I'm going to snap you. Stay away. And we get like that. And in order to prevent anybody from questioning us, we're right out there in the front throwing the first punch every time. But you can't hide from God, you know? God knows you. God knows you. It's like your mom or your dad. They know you. You act however you act around your friends, and then your mom shows up. You're like, Mom, leave. Why? Because Mom knows who I am, and she's going to laugh at me because I don't act like this. In Psalm 139, it says in verse 7, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol or in the grave, you're there. Verse 11 and 12, If I say, Surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night. That's that concealing. Everything's going to be dark. No one's going to know anything about me. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. Psalmist knew. Psalmist knew. I can't hide from God. Even if I try to conceal who I am, God knows who I am. Jonah tried to run from the Lord, didn't he? Yeah, well, you're the God of Israel, so what if I leave Israel? You can't catch me now. And then all of a sudden the storm shows up, and they're like, hey, what God do you worship? We want to try pray to as many as we can and try and catch the right one. And Jonah says what? I serve the Lord who made the earth and the sea. Jonah's like, I should have known. What am I gonna do? Oh, God's like, oh, I can't reach him anymore. You can't hide from God. 
And Jonah ends up in the depths. He ends up in the belly of the fish in the bottom of the ocean. That's what it's like when you try to hide from God. Your whole life just plunges down. You're down in the depths. You're down in the darkness. You're scared to death. When we refuse to face up to who we really are, that's what it's like. Refuse to face what we've really done. Adam was hiding. Why was Adam hiding? What should have Adam done? Adam should have come running to God, brokenhearted and weeping at his feet. Lord, I'm so sorry. But he didn't. God had to corner him. Even when God catches him, Adam is trying to redirect the conversation. Oh, I'm sorry, Lord, I wasn't dressed. And he's asked point blank, did you eat the fruit, Adam? And Adam's next strategy, as is Eve's strategy, is to begin deflecting blame. Adam blames not only the woman, but you see, he blames God himself. He says, the woman that you gave me. You gave me the woman. She gave me the fruit. Here we are. He's refusing to take responsibility. And Eve does the same thing. Well, the serpent deceived me. Everybody's trying to pass the baton, pass it off. And this is the second thing. If we can't hide, if we can't avoid the truth, we start to blame other people. There's always someone you can blame for what you've done. And it can keep us from facing up to our sin. Adam blamed Eve. Well, Eve, she gave it to me. And you gave her to me, God. So if I had said no to her, it was like I was saying no to you. So this is really your fault, God. That's a chilling thing to say to the Lord out loud, but we do it in our hearts all the time. Eve, I was deceived. It wasn't my fault. I was tricked. Then the Lord said, well, why were you tricked? Well, it doesn't matter because I was tricked. It's his fault, not mine. We blame the immediate cause a lot of times. Whoever tempted us or pressured us. It was my friends. If I had better friends, I wouldn't have done that. Well, she seduced me. It's her fault. Ah, well, he pressured me. It was his fault for doing that. It was my boss. I was going to lose my job if I didn't do that. We blame people. Or we can... If we, there's no immediate cause and it's obviously our fault, what do we do? Let's see, how far back can I go? It's my parents' fault. It's my mom's fault. My dad never hugged me as a kid, Your Honor. That's why I killed all them people. It's like, excuse me? You hear that? You ever get mad when you hear things like that? It's like, that's your excuse? You know, you don't get to pass blame on that. Well, society just, just forgot me. I'm just down in the cracks. And if you read a lot of those old like uh, 18th century novels, like Les Miserables, for example... The, the whole tenor of that conversation was, it's not these people's fault that they're committing crimes. It's because they're poor. And that's, that's the whole point of, of that whole thing. But the Lord doesn't buy that. <laughs> the Lord doesn't go, okay, yeah, okay, that's fine. But what about you, though? The serpent deceived you. That is true. The serpent did deceive Eve. And God did give Eve to Adam. That is true. But what is also true is that Adam ate the fruit and Eve ate the fruit. You always have a choice. And you know what? If we can't even go that far back, we start to blame God. God allowed me to do it. He should never have let me do it. I don't know any better. I'm sinful and God knows it. He should never let me get into that kind of situation. You know how you can tell when you're doing this? You know how you know when you're deflecting blame? is when you start to talk about the consequences of something you did as something that happened to you. I've heard folks that'll talk about, I don't know, they lost their job because they mouthed off at their boss. And they say, I don't know why I'm going through this trial. 
I don't know why God's making me go through this. I'm sitting there, I know why. Because God told you to be respectful and to keep your temper under control. And you didn't do that. So don't talk about it like it's something that's happening to you. That's also how you know when somebody hasn't learned their lesson. You ever see somebody and you're like, I would have thought that's rock bottom for you, but apparently it's not. Apparently you've got farther to go. That's when we refuse to acknowledge responsibility for what we've done. You say, well, this is, I don't know why God brought this into my life. Hey, don't pin your stuff on God, okay? If you did something wrong, say, God, I'm very sorry. I should not have done that. It's different. You can say God is going to bring something good out of a horrible mess that I made. That's true. But don't come and say God made this horrible mess so that he could bring something good out of it. It's very different. The Lord is not honored by that. And you can, you can take the blame game all the way back to Eden if you want to. The thing is, Lord, I was born into the human race, and the human race is under the federal headship of Adam, so I was born into sin because of what he did, and he only ate the fruit because Eve gave him the fruit, and you gave Eve to Adam, so it's really your fault, God. You can take it back all the way you want. Sooner or later, you've got to say, it's me. I did it. Like David in Psalm 51, verses 2 and 4. This is how David came to the Lord. He said, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. You ever had days like that? You can't think about nothing else except for the sin that you committed. Against you, he said, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. I love that sentence. He says, I sinned against you. Whatever judgment you wanted to bring against me is right because I was wrong. Look in yourself dead in the face. And acknowledging who you really are can be a very painful, fearful thing. To have to acknowledge that's me. Not that happened to me. Not I was deceived by the serpent, but I ate the fruit. I ate the fruit. I committed that sin. But we've all got to do it. We've all got to let Jesus bring us to the place where there's nowhere left to go. Like Peter, when Peter looked Jesus in the face after denying him for the third time, and it says he saw him, and Peter went out and wept bitterly. That weeping bitterly is when Peter acknowledged it's nobody's fault except mine. I denied the Lord. You've got to be willing to look yourself in the face. Because when you're fleeing from the conviction of God's Holy Spirit, you're down in the depths like Jonah. Or like Adam, hiding in the garden when the Lord is out there walking in the cool of the day and wants to have fellowship with you. Adam's fellowship with God was broken. There was something between them. Before everything was open, and, and Adam's nakedness is a, is a symbol and a picture of that. That it was physical, but it also was spiritual. There was nothing between God and Adam or Eve. But now, it's been broken. And in our lives, without confession, without repentance, it's the same thing for us. In 1 John chapter 1, these are important verses here. 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, and then verse 9. It says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Not my fault. John says, you're deceiving yourself. You're lying to yourself, we would say. But, in verse 9, if we confess our sins... 
He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I, for whatever reason lately, have seen a lot of folks making fun of the Christian idea of confession and repentance for the forgiveness of sins. I can do whatever I want as long as I say I'm sorry. No, that's not what we believe. What we believe is that you have to take your eyes, turn them inward, see the depths and the darkness of your soul, and say, God, that's me. I need you to forgive me. It's not a flippant thing. That's the most serious thing a person can do. Now, if Adam and Eve had done that, it's very hard to say that things would have been different. But it would have been right. It would have been the right thing for them to do, to ask for forgiveness in that moment. Look at them. They're not asking for forgiveness. They're trying to get the ball off of them. You ever been in one of those meetings where the whole team missed it? <laughs> the boss is looking for somebody to pin it on, and you're just, it's every man for himself in that moment. Ah, it wasn't me. That's not my department. I just do what I'm told. It's what they're doing. Rather than saying, I'm sorry, Lord. I'm so desperately sorry. This is the problem. This is the problem every person on earth faces. We have all sinned, and we all refuse to own up to it and find forgiveness. We all think that in our case, there are good excuses, and therefore, I'm in the clear. But it's not the case. Adam and Eve should have confessed and repented, as we should. But there's going to be consequences. There always are consequences. So let's read and see what happens. So they're having this little back and forth, and I'm inclined to believe that these are representative statements. I'm sure it was back and forth, and bickering, and nagging, and finally, verse 14 the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The Lord begins to have his say. Your Bible may have it, in verse format here because the Hebrew is now rhythmic and poetic. This is very common in the Bible that judgments or oracles of judgment, as they're called, are poetic and they're rhythmic. You can't really pick it up in the English, but it's there, and that's why it looks that way. You notice the Lord does not ask the serpent why he did what he did. Why would you do that? He just jumps straight into the judgment. Now remember, the serpent here is a vehicle for Satan, for the devil, the rebel angel. So there is a judgment here against the snake, but broadly this is more about the devil than it is about snakes. It does not say, you'll see it, it does not say that the snake formerly had legs, but many people have speculated that, that by saying on your belly you will go, he's implying that as before the snake didn't go on its belly, that it, it had legs and maybe it was some sort of Komodo dragon looking thing, I don't know. Uh, but it doesn't say that, so I'm hesitant to push it. And there are other things that the Lord created without legs, too. So nothing wrong with, with thinking that. I think it's up for discussion and debate anyway, but we can't know for sure. Either way, he's saying this snake is cast down to lick the dirt and face hatred from humanity. He made a top ten list of animals that people hate. Snake's probably somewhere on there. But more broadly, as I said, this isn't just about reptiles. This isn't like Aesop's fables. And that's why snakes have no legs. It's much broader and deeper than that. This is against Satan. We talked about him last week, the exalted angel who wanted to raise himself up above the Lord. Well, the Lord 
declares that you are going to eat the dust of creation. You wanted to be like the Most High. You wanted to be lifted up above all the other angels. You're going to eat dust your whole life. Satan, in this ploy that he executed against Adam and Eve, very interesting to wonder if he was trying to gain allies in some sort of alliance against God. But we see in verse 15, it didn't work. Satan didn't make any friends here. See, maybe he had been thinking after this is over, I'll say, see, I told you God was like that. Now you, you join with me and we'll make things our way. He says in verse 15, I will put enmity between you. Hatred between you. That's what that word means. It's a similar root to the word enemy. You will be enemies to each other. We don't, uh, we don't think very highly of Satan these days, do we? And it's very interesting, this whole thing about the serpent's head being crushed and you want to be careful how far you push this, but I do think it's interesting to think about. Almost every culture in the whole world has some legend or other of the great serpent being slain by the hero. And obviously this is not saying that the Bible is just another legend, but you can see, I think in seed form, how the Lord kept the promise alive all over the world. That someday that great dragon is going to be destroyed. That great serpent is going to be cast down. And this is what we see the, the pure version of it here in the scriptures. Just interesting to think about, as I said. And in verse 15, we have one of the most significant verses in the entirety of Scripture, especially here in the book of Genesis. Let me read it again. The Lord says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring or your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is very significant. It's a Latin word that we use to refer to this called the Proto-evangelium. Proto means first. Evangelium is like the word evangelism. It means gospel. So when we refer to the proto-evangelium, we're referring to the first gospel, meaning this is the first verse in the Bible where you find the gospel in seed form. This is the problem of sin, but it's also the first mention of hope. The Lord is casting down judgment, but even in that judgment, he's declaring that there is hope, that there's good news. It's the first good news. It's what gospel means. He says there will be enmity between the offspring, and that word for offspring is the Hebrew word zerah, which means seed, and that the seed of woman will bruise the head of the serpent. The Lord is saying that this woman that you deceived is going to have a child, and that child is going to be your greatest enemy. And you're going to bruise his heel, but he's going to bruise or crush your head. We see this played out in Revelation 12. We read some of this passage last week that the great dragon sees the woman about to give birth and the dragon is waiting to devour the child as it's born because the serpent knows that the seed of the woman is going to be his greatest enemy. And the Lord delivers him out of that, and it's a very interesting passage you can read. But you can see throughout the Bible, over and over again, and we're going to try and call it out as we go through, that Satan is always trying to cut off or corrupt the seed of the woman, the descendants of Adam. Because he knows there is a promised one, a Messiah, or Christ is the Greek word. And so Satan is doing everything he can to prevent that child from being born. We're going to see in chapter 6 that humanity is going to become corrupted with demonic blood, that there's going to be countless times where the enemy is trying to cut off the race of Israel. 
in the book of Exodus where the firstborn children, Pharaoh orders them all to be executed. When Jesus was born, that Herod ordered all that generation to be executed because Satan's trying to stamp out that line. He's trying to prevent this from happening. Because that seed of woman, as it said, is Jesus Christ himself. That somebody's going to come, devil, who's going to crush you. He crushed the head of Satan at the cross. And then that word for bruise in, in the ESV, it's the same word. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. The idea is you're going to strike his heel, but he's going to strike your head. Now, let me ask you, which you'd rather have your head bruised or your heel bruised? Do you understand? One of them is worse than the other. And Jesus Christ was bruised at the cross, was he not? He was hurt, he was wounded, but not forever. But Satan's head has been crushed. And this is the first place we see this here. Now, why do we draw that out? There's a couple of reasons. I'm going to give you three textual reasons why we believe this verse says that. Number one, when it says the seed of the woman, between her seed and your seed, women do not have seed as we speak of it. That word, as I said, is zerah in Hebrew, and the Greek word there is sperma, from where we get our word sperm. So it's very odd that that word is attached to a woman in this passage, which is pretty cool because it indicates us what? The virgin birth. That there was going to be a woman who was going to give birth to somebody that there was no contribution from a man in that sense. Very, very cool little note there. And secondly, when it says that he shall bruise your head. Now that's indefinite in Hebrew because the verb form doesn't specify gender, but when the first Greek translations were translated here, they translated it as he, which means for generations people have understood that this was going to be that Messiah who's going to come. And third of all, we know that Jesus was bruised and Satan was bruised, but one was bruised on the heel, so to speak, and one was bruised on the head. One's permanent, one you rise from the dead after three days, you understand. And there are folks that say, ah, it's just pressing the text. No, it's not. The Holy Spirit inspired this text. He knew what was going to happen. This is the Garden of Eden. This is the beginning of the curse. You don't think that the Lord was thinking down the line to what he was going to do later? The Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel, God's solution to the problem. And we see it fulfilled in Jesus' life. Galatians chapter 4, verses 3 through 5 says, When we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman. That's a reference to this verse right here. Born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. That Jesus' birth meant life for all of us. That serpent's bite is the temptation to sin. Every single one of us has been bitten in that way. And we're all left naked and ashamed before God. But the Lord right here says, someday there's going to be a child who's going to be born that's going to crush you. And that was Jesus Christ, the seed of woman, one of the titles of Jesus. He lived without sin. He died on the cross, took the bruise on his heel so that he could crush the head of Satan. And now God can offer forgiveness freely. He delayed judgment in mercy to Adam and Eve here, but he said, I'm going to do what it takes that I can offer you forgiveness, not just a stay of judgment. And that's offered to us too now. Isaiah 53, 4 and 5 says that he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace 
and with his wounds we are healed. So Adam and Eve find themselves broken before God. We find ourselves the same way. But even in this moment, God promised salvation. And we get to look back and say, thank you, Lord. We got to see it not just prophesied, but come to pass. And now we're living that forgiveness. Special time to be alive, you guys. Well, he's done with the serpent. Let's see what he says in verse 16. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now, as I said, the Lord promised the defeat of the serpent. There is hope for us, but we still have to live in a world full of sin. We still bear the consequences of our own actions. It's one of the hardest parts of growing up is when you start making decisions that are going to affect the rest of your life. And you might have been able to make it right with the people around you, but you've still got to live through the consequences of what's happened. And God turns to Eve and he says, because of your sin, your roles as mother and wife are going to be full of pain and hardship rather than just joy. When we sin, he says both to Adam and to Eve, I will increase your pain. Pain increases when you sin. Does that mean that you can't find joy? Of course not. Does that mean that there's no hope? No. But it does mean the more you sin, the more painful life gets. First, the Lord increased the pain of women in childbirth. This was a judgment for Eve's deception and a judgment for her sin. And it was not the way that it was always meant to be. Very hard for us to think of childbirth without pain. But this is what the Lord had made for them. And now he says, now it's going to be painful. Secondly, conflict was introduced into her relationship with her husband. I see this less as the Lord saying, from now on, here's how it's going to be because I said so. It's more like, because of what you've done, here's how it's going to be from now on. You remember, Eve was created to be Adam's helper, to be by his side, to be in faithful submission to him. In her sin, she overreached that role. She did not submit to her husband. She determined for herself what she was going to do. And she is being rebuked and judged for that here in this verse. He says, your desire shall be for your husband. That, that word for, it can be against your husband. It can be, your desire shall be for what your husband has. This isn't that you're going to look at your husband and you're going to love him so much. This is going to be, there's going to be an aggression and a conflict in your relationship. He's saying, Eve, because of what you've done, you're no longer going to be satisfied with the role that I've given to you. Instead, you're going to try and take it from your husband, just as you always did. But what does he say? But he shall rule over you. He says, Eve, you have broken the relationship of husband and wife. Because now that Adam has seen this, you think Adam's going to let you do it again? Now Adam is not going to be complacent and standing back. He says, he will rule over you. Adam is going to step in and be harsh with you. God's not saying this is the way it has to be. He's saying this is the way it's going to be because of sin. Do you see what you've done, Eve? And I'll tell you, if there is a single line in Scripture that is 100% true, it's this one. That this describes the relationship between husbands and wives apart from Jesus Christ. That wives will desire to rule over their husbands, and husbands will be harsh and dominant over their wives. This is not the way God made it. And it's ironic, and it's not funny, but it, it's ironically funny when... There are some feminist theologians that want to write about this verse and see 
Now you can see right there the patriarchal intent of the Bible. And they're trying to keep us down and say that we can't be equal and we can't lead and we can't rule. It's like, you're doing exactly what this verse says. You are living out exactly what this says. It demonstrates the wisdom that God had here. This is a temptation that women face. That The Bible says, wives, submit to your husbands. And they go, but I don't want to submit to my husband. I shouldn't have to submit to my husband. Why? Why? And men face the opposite temptation to respond harshly, not to be a servant leader. Remember Jesus said the Gentiles, they lord it over each other. Not so with you. Whoever wants to be a leader shall be the servant of all. But men face the temptation to dominate, to rule over them rather than to lead in kindness and in love. And there are different marriages, there are different people and different combinations of personalities, and they end up out of balance in different ways. You have some marriages where the wife is not in submission to her husband at all. He has totally abstained from his responsibility to lead, and she has totally flipped the script from what God said. But then you got the other one where instead of her being a helper who is by his side, he's got her under his boot and he's grinding her down and saying, this is what God said I could do, so get out of my way. It's not good. It's sin at work. Listen, we believe in a triune God. That God is three persons in one substance. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Each one has a distinct role within that Godhead. And yet each one is equal in substance and value to the others. Jesus is not greater than the Holy Spirit. They have different roles that they play. And God himself teaches us in our marriage relationships, in our relationships in any capacity, what you do doesn't matter. It's what you do. It's not who you are. But it is sin that introduces resentment over God's design. This is also, this verse right here, and we're not just this verse, this whole passage, is why Paul and the other New Testament writers insist on male leadership in the church. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 12 through 15. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. It is amazing how such a straightforward verse has been twisted and tweaked to say the exact opposite of what it says. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Why, Paul? Why in the church should men be the leaders and teachers? He says, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. What's that last bit mean? He says, but if we can return under the lordship of Jesus Christ, we can return to the way that God intended it in the Garden of Eden, and it will be awesome. But Paul is saying, we're, we're not coming here to innovate on God's design. The church is a restoration of God's design in the beginning. The Lord did not change that. And the church is wrong to try to undermine this in marriage or in the congregation or wherever. And I think it's very disingenuous for a lot of Christian pastors and teachers and seminary professors who want to pretend like it's been a fresh reading of the scripture that has opened their eyes to this thing. It's like, how about the fact that you live in a society that is rampant in its leveling of the differences of, and the roles and the nature of men and women? And you're just part of that same wave. So, well, we've just got to take another fresh look at the scripture. Not when it's clear. We want to take a fresh look at scripture when we find ourselves going right along with the rest of the world. And what people will say is, well, 
men have been oppressive of women in the past. Okay, yeah, the Lord said that was going to be the case here too. But that doesn't make the opposite thing good because the other thing is bad. God did not give men a mandate to dominate their wives. He said in Colossians 3, 18 and 19, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Seems like a pretty good system to me. Don't be harsh with each other. Love each other. Even Ephesians, it says, submit to one another out of the respect and love for Christ. This is a challenge that we're going to have to face our whole lives. But you know what? Through Jesus Christ, it can be redeemed. Sin has consequences, but Jesus gives us his Holy Spirit to overcome. Adam's turn, verse 17. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The Lord turns to Adam. Adam does not get off the hook because his wife was the primary offender. God comes in and says, Adam, because of you, the entire world is cursed now. Lord, she did it. I put you in charge. You don't get to just, ah, it wasn't me. I didn't do anything. The Lord says it's, it's your fault. In chapter 1, verse 28, God gave Adam dominion over the whole world. And because Adam sinned, that whole world was affected. Adam was always meant to work the ground, to till the fields. But now the Lord is saying, it's not going to be a delight for you anymore, Adam. It's going to be hard, backbreaking labor. He's saying the earth is going to resist your efforts now. I did not grow up on a farm, as you maybe can tell. But uh, in our backyard, we had a sandbox and a swing set for years and years and years. Finally, my mom decided the kids are grown. It's time for us to do something different with that. So my dad and I went into the backyard, and we shoveled all the sand out, and we got rid of the swing set. And then we were left with nothing but hard-packed red Virginia clay. And that stuff is inflexible. <laughs> and so we went and rented a rototiller. And man, oh man, having to plow that mud up that had sat there compacted for all those years. One of the hardest things I've ever had to do to this day. And I could not help but think of this verse while I was doing it. It says, the ground is going to resist you, Adam. It's not going to be easy for you anymore. The introduction of thorns and thistles. All the terrible labor of farming, the dangers of farming, they've all become reality now. And we also know that not just the ground, but all of creation, even the animals, were filled with corruption. The animals at this point would have become carnivorous and fierce. Entropy, as we call it, set in. That's the second law of thermodynamics. Things wind down. Things don't get better over time. You don't leave the milk out on the counter and it just gets more delicious every day. It gets worse. This is a result of Adam taking control. Now, see, see what's going on here. God gave Adam dominion over the earth. God was overseeing it and blessing it and holding it together. Adam said, no, I will rule. Adam had no power to sustain the world. So now you're seeing exactly what kind of control people have over the earth. We can't stop these things. It's only the mercy of God that it doesn't all fall to pieces. And worst of all, 
You are dust, and to dust you shall return. The curse of death comes to Adam and all his children. There was no death yet. But God had promised in chapter 217 that if you eat the fruit of that tree, you will surely die. He says, Adam, you're going to lose your battle with the earth. You're going to fight with it your whole life, and then you're going to return to it at the end of your life. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. We have inherited the sin of Adam. That's what that verse tells us. It says that because Adam sinned, the judgment for his sin was passed on to us. But it also adds at the end, but we all sinned too. Well, I didn't do anything. Yeah, you did. None of us can blame him because we have countless times over done the exact same thing that would have earned us the exact same fate. Everything has been corrupted by sin. Work, marriage, the earth itself. And death is the end of it all. That's where life leads apart from God. And bringing it back to what we were saying at the beginning, if you live a life where you're unwilling to repent and confess your sins and face up to who you are and bring it to God, you're going to live into a world like this where everything falls apart. You ever try to run your life by yourself without God? How in the world do people do it? Miserably is the answer. Everything just falls to pieces. This is what we brought on ourselves when we sinned. The serpent lied to them. I mean, yeah, but they should have known better. God told them, don't do it. God's lying to you. Well, here we are. They have a life of pain awaiting them now. That's the curse, those verses. Verse, I believe it's 14 through 19. Then we get to verse 20, and we're going to go a little quicker to the end here. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. These are very interesting little verses. They almost feel out of place in the the flow here. Why are we coming to Eve's name all of a sudden? We're talking about the curse here. Well, both of these things, the naming of Eve, the clothing of the man and the woman, they both speak of hope in the face of everything that was just spoken. Up till now, we've not been given Eve's name. Her name has been the woman, which is Isha in Hebrew. Do you remember that? Ish means man. Isha means woman. It's the feminine form. And now he gives her that proper name, Eve. (laughs) If you are familiar with the Hebrew or the Greek of Scripture at all, we anglicize every name, and we get almost all of them very wrong. Uh, That name Eve in Hebrew is Chava. So if you've ever known someone who was from that part of the world or someone who had a Jewish heritage. Her name was Chava. That was named after Eve. And I don't know why we dropped the CH at the beginning or why we turned the A's into E's, but we did. It's Chava. And it's related to the Hebrew word Chaya, which means life. So that form of it means life bringer or life giver. And in Greek, that name is Zoe, that Adam named his wife Zoe, which is life. A zoo is a place where you go see living things, Zoe. So if you've ever known someone named Zoe, she's named after Eve. And the Lord removes the fig leaves and replaces them with animal skins of his own making. Garments of skins. Very, very briefly, clothing is God's idea. It's not something to overcome. There are some very weird people that want to tell you, in the Garden of Eden, they were naked. 
Now, in Jesus Christ, we have the redemption of all things. So therefore, if we wear clothing, we're submitting to the curse. That's very weird, and it's not biblical. The Bible even says that in heaven, we will have heavenly garments. So no need to talk anymore about that. I think we get the idea here. But when we sin and we find ourselves separated from God, there's that world of pain, there's that world of hope, but we saw in verse 15, the proto-evangelium, the first gospel, first good news. In that hope, Adam names his wife Chava. He names her Eve. He says, you're going to bring life to the world. Can you imagine how Eve is feeling right now? I have brought death to the whole world. And Adam says, no, your name is Chava means life bringer, because you're going to bring life. Not only is she going to bring life to every child after this, she's going to bring life to the Messiah, who's going to fix all this. That, that's male leadership in a family, gentlemen. That's how you lead your wife. You speak a better word, like Jesus speaks a better word over our lives. I'm this way. No, you're not. That's not how I see you. I've brought death to the whole world. No, you're going to bring life, Chava. Don't call me that. I don't deserve it. I'm going to call you that anyway. That's leadership in a marriage. He doesn't rub it in her face. What have you done? No. He says, no, look, God promised. God said that that serpent's head is going to get crushed by one of our children, your seed. I don't understand what that means exactly, but it's going to come from you. You're the life bringer. And the Lord clothes them with skins, by the way. You know what that means? In order to do that, something had to die. This is also an anticipation of when the Son of God was going to come and that the covering of our sin could only come through the death of the Lamb of God, of Jesus Christ. All of this, it's faith. He names her in faith. God clothes them to inspire faith that someday this is going to be set right. They're looking forward to redemption. Y'all, we get to look backwards to redemption. They had to say, someday, we get to say, back then. How awesome is that? Real quickly, 1 Corinthians 15, 21 and 22 says, By one man came death, by one man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Isn't that awesome? Love that. Right now, Paul says you're just tasting redemption. Someday Jesus is going to come back, and you're going to be drowning in it, <laughs> drowning in redemption. If you hold on to your sin and you refuse to repent, you're going to miss this kind of hope. If you're going to put a name over yourself, I'm a death bringer. I'm a ruiner. I ruin things. I wreck things. I'm no good. I'm damaged, whatever. The Lord comes in and says, no, there's faith. There's hope. Let me cover you. That's what love does. And as Christians, we hold on to hope at all times. Remember Elijah in the desert? Lord, I'm the last one. I'm the last one. There's no hope. God goes, get up. I have 7,000 other prophets, Elijah. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, but you know me. <laughs> Isn't that enough to know me? We have hope as Christians. Paul said it's one of our top three virtues, right? Faith, hope, and love. Verse 22, coming to the end. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. 
Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. There is hope, but there is also consequences for sin. Adam and Eve are driven from the garden. And in verse 22, again, the Lord is speaking to us. Like before, he said, let us make man in our image. Now he's saying man has become like one of us. I think this is another reference to the Trinity. I think this one, more than the other one, it's more likely that this is the Lord speaking to his heavenly court, like you see in the book of Job, or as you see in, uh, I believe it's 1 Kings or 2 Kings, where the Lord is speaking to the host of angels around him. If you believe that, you have to believe that angels are made in the image of God. I am not going to touch that today. That's a debate for another day that isn't really relevant to anything. So I'm just going to leave that alone. Probably a Trinitarian reference there. But he says, they've become like us. They know good and evil. Very difficult to know exactly what changed in Adam and Eve when they ate that fruit, but something did. Because the Lord said, I can't let them live forever anymore. I can't let them stay here. Now there's a lot of options that are thrown out there that, oh, they were unconscious. They were like animals before, and the fruit made them conscious. Well, that's not true, because the Lord had them conscious before. He was speaking to them. They were speaking to each other. Well, they were not rational. Well, they were rational because they were arguing back and forth with the serpent, you remember? And there are folks that will say, well, they gained the experience of evil. They gained the experience of good and evil. Okay, that's true, but I don't think that's exactly what God's referring to here. And then there are folks that say, well, now they had the ability to make moral choices. Well, what was the fall? It was a moral choice. So it's very difficult to know exactly here. I think the best way to understand this, I like this phrase. I think I came up with it. Maybe I got it from somewhere. But it was, their imagination was unleashed. No more were they confined to the pure, innocent thoughts that God had given them. Now they were able to see possibility in every direction, good and evil. This is why when they were naked and they saw each other, they panicked and covered themselves because no longer was it just the innocence of being together and being in love. They could see the possibility of evil. And not only that, they gained that knowledge by force. So the only way they had access to the knowledge of good and evil was when they found themselves on the wrong side of that knowledge. So not only did they know the possibility, they knew exactly where they stood. It is very hard for us to conceive of people as anything other than knowing good and evil because we've never experienced it. Hard to understand exactly what Adam and Eve were like in the Garden of Eden. But the Lord knew they couldn't stay there forever. He says, for them to live here would not only be a burden to them, because they're going to spend their whole lives remembering what they've done, but also it would be an opportunity for evil to proliferate and worsen. As sick as it sounds, there are some people that when, they are, when they're so wicked... That when they die, it's like a scourge is removed from the earth. It's like when we found out that Osama bin Laden had been killed. It's like in one sense, you don't want to be happy that anybody dies and goes to hell. But in another sense, it's like that wicked man is finally not around causing trouble anymore. And the Lord's like, I'm not going to let them stay here and live forever. I'm not going to let Hitler live forever. I'm not going to let Stalin live forever. I'm not going to let that happen. So he drives them out of the Garden of Eden. And he sets up angels to guard the way back to the tree of life. No saving ourselves, guys. We're going we're gonna to fight those angels. Good luck. 
God laid down the judgment. The world is broken. The image of God in man has been driven out of paradise. And death is going to enter into God's most special creation. But y'all, let me wrap it up with this. There is good news. The Lord sent his son, Jesus Christ, the seed of the woman, crushed the serpent's head at the cross, and rose from the dead for the forgiveness of sins. The Lord could have judged them right then and there with death, but in his mercy, he delayed judgment so that he could make atonement for sin. But as we read in Acts 17, now you've got a choice to make. You can be like Adam and Eve in the garden, hiding yourself, deflecting blame, pointing your finger in the face of God. But if you try to hide and you try to argue, you're going to pay the price of death. Not only someday, but now. Your whole world will be a life of death. You'll be like Jonah in the belly of the fish at the very bottom, and nothing joyful comes into your life. But if you come to the Lord, open, naked, confessing who you are, God, this is who I am. I need you. You cry out to Jesus to save you. God will forgive you. He'll give you a new life. Not just eternal life then. He'll redeem your life now. And in Revelation 22, we don't have time to read the passage, but in heaven, you know what John sees? The tree of life. So when the Lord destroyed the world in the flood, it seems that he reached down and picked it up and said, I'm going to need this later. So cool. We read from Romans at the beginning that creation was subjected to futility, but in hope that someday we're going to taste that tree of life. The Bible says every month it produces a new fruit. So there's 12 different flavors to the tree of life. Isn't that something? Guys, don't hide your sin. Don't deflect blame. Bring it to God in faith. The Lord wants to see you open before him. He doesn't want all that mess, all that nonsense that we put up, all the weirdness that we do in order to seem acceptable to each other. God wants to strip all that away and look you dead in the eyes. And when he does that, he loves you. We are under the curse now, but we have seen the hope of the Lord Jesus Christ who became a curse for us by hanging on the tree and has risen from the dead to give hope and life to everyone who believes in his name.